good design speaks. It doesn't need to be sold. And uh, I just brought all that I knew over and combined it with the team that was here. You know, we focused on just getting on and doing, doing great work and really pushing ourselves and the clients hard. The Business of Architecture and Design is brought to you by Content Brains and presented by Architectural Review Magazine and Australian Design Review. Episode 3 in this special series with Chris Boss and Vince Frost highlights what drew Chris to Australia, his experiences with the Beijing Olympics and how a crossroads in his career led to setting up his own practice. I guess what I want to ask you, Chris, is uh, what brought you to Australia? In 2002, the German economy probably wasn't at its peak. We were doing a lot of competitions in the office I was working at, and we were actually winning competitions, and we were creating amazing ideas and visions, but somehow the project never went anywhere. And at the same time, I had a friend who was spending some time in Australia and he said, hey, this is booming, you know, post the Olympics, they're building left, right, center. And here's a company that would be interested in employing you. And that was PTW Architect. Ah. So I thought, why not give it a go? So I wasn't intending to move to Australia or anything. I just thought I'd spend some time here, do a little bit of work and travel, see a few things and uh, get some new experiences. But then I started at PTW, literally like the day after I landed, and was right away kind of thrown into this international work environment, which was truly mind-boggling compared to being like in a small company in Germany where everybody is German, the projects are kind of in Germany or at least European. All of a sudden being, you know, my first project was the Jilin University in China. And I was working with a team of one Brazilian girl, uh, one guy from Hong Kong, one guy from Thailand and a couple of Aussies. And, and even these people were Aussies. But, you know, this international kind of environment all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. And I just found that very inspiring. Mm. And I found Australia incredibly welcoming. Yep. To a point I thought, you know, everybody seems to come from somewhere. So it's not like I come here from Germany and everybody else has been here for thousands of years. It's kind of everybody is new to this and everybody is excited about it Mm -hmm. and everybody wants to make a difference. Mm -hmm. So that was really an inspiring environment. So we did projects in China, in Japan, in Indonesia and in Australia. So one of the projects was in Homebush where the Olympic site uh, was looking to to establish like a legacy condition, transforming the parking lots, for example, into buildings, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that was all like really engaging. And then <clears throat> after a few months, we were invited as a practice to participate in a competition for the Beijing Olympics, for the National Swimming Center for the 2008 Olympics. And we started working on the project and it became kind of my little pet project as part of a big team, of course, but mm-hmm. I was very excited about the project and I thought it's a great opportunity to bring in some of my international experience from Europe, uh, engineering and architecture, nature and technology and those kind of mm-hmm. thoughts. And then we won the competition. 
So this was all within like six months of me starting at PDW. I think I started in October 2002 and uh, we won the competition, I think, in April, maybe May 2003. And so then I thought, okay, my work experience is over. Do I go back to Germany or do I build the National Aquatic Center for the Olympic Games in the greatest nation that is uh, just coming out of kind of a more communist past into this capitalist development future. And so I spent the next three to five years working with PDW on the Aquatic Center in Beijing, spending a lot of time in China on the actual delivery of the project. And at the same time, doing lots of other projects in other places. I think I went to Japan like 10 times. You know, some young uh, guy from Germany, all of a sudden, <laughs> walking around in Japan, presenting projects, looking at sites, having having meetings with people like Mori developers, one of the great developers in Japan who did the, the what is it called, uh, Roppongi Hills development. Oh, yeah. So this was all like, it was an amazing uh, journey for me mm. and uh, incredible growth experience for me that I could have never dreamt of as a guy studying architecture in Germany. Yeah, you know, yeah. some of my friends I studied with, uh, I was almost getting to a point where I couldn't tell them anymore what I was doing because <laughs> uh, one of them was working on a hospital project and his job was for three years being in charge of all the doors in this hospital. So imagine a big hospital has a lot of doors, yeah. with different types of doors, security doors, operating theater doors, mm -hmm. entry doors, exit doors. And that was his job. He was just working on doors for a hospital while I was flying around Japan, uh, you know, doing new things every day. And how did lava come about? And um, Yeah, and, but even that, sorry? How did lava come about? How did lava come about? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so, so I had a really amazing time at uh, PTW, I have to say, and uh, I will be eternally grateful for the opportunities they gave me. But after five years or so, I had to think about my future. I mean, you constantly think about the future, but you just come to a certain point in your life <clears throat> where you have to go left or right. And so one option would have been to see your long-term future within this big commercial practice and become associate director and director and all those things, but within this corporate environment. <clears throat> and one of the things that I didn't enjoy about working in a large commercial practice is all the politics, all the internal procedures, you know, if you want to purchase a pen because you <laughs> need to draw a line, you have to apply it through so many processes to get to the pen that mm. your deadline is over by the time you have the pen and paper and those kind of things. Or mm. I was teaching at university. I got some students to help us with competitions, which was really exciting. And then the accountant came and said, these students are getting too expensive, although they were actually unpaid students. And so the accountant explained to me, it doesn't matter if someone is paid or not, you still attribute the overhead to the hourly rate. So the student, whatever he earns, still costs you $100 an hour. Those kind of things, it was just mind-boggling how complicated uh, kind of this life is in a business like that. And so the other option was to set up my own practice. And starting from scratch on your own is, of course, a huge challenge. Mm. 
and you leave everything behind, all the connections, all the financial backing, all the portfolio, all the staff, all the infrastructure. And so in 2007, I was approached or this opportunity kind of presented itself to me through mysterious ways, but it turned out that there was a big project that was interested in having me on board mm-hmm. and was also interested in having Tobias Walliser on board, who is now my partner in Germany and the third partner, Alexander Rieck. Mm-hmm. So the three of us kind of magically came together working on a large project in the Middle East and enabling us to set up a distributed network practice where each of us had their own office, their own staff, their own computers, their own infrastructure, but we were jointly working on this one project. Mm-hmm. And so that was like a Kickstarter for us. The project financed us initially and enabled us to build up communication systems and you know, a structure of how we work together, how we talk to each other, how we exchange files, et cetera, et cetera. And the project also allowed us to come together once a month in Dubai <clears throat> and have workshops and project meetings, etc. And so based on this one project, we then started getting more projects, developing a business and uh, stretching out into the Australian market, into the German market, into the Middle Eastern market, and later into the Chinese market, <clears throat> and established this international practice. Interestingly, this all came to a grinding halt in the financial crisis, which we are kind of reminded of in these days today, but all the projects all at once stopped. The finances dried up. The staff was leaving or we couldn't keep them anymore. Mm -hmm. And it was a very uncertain future from one day to the next. And it actually, I'm very much reminded of that because initially there was this phase of denial. You know, I remember we went to this large building exhibition where we launched a luxury residential tower for Michael Schumacher. And the motto of the exhibition was crisis, what crisis? Mm. Two weeks later, the whole world was in shutdown. All the projects stopped. Um, people like Woods Baggett had to close their offices mm. in, in the Middle East and let half of the staff go and so on. So it, it turned so quickly, it was unbelievable. But we had established this practice, LAVA, and we had established a vision and a connection and uh, while the following years were quite difficult for us, the beginning was made. And then it probably took us another 10 years or so to, to build practice up as it is today, which is still in the same configuration. There's still the same three partners. We have three different offices. We have now added another office to the mix in Vietnam, which I'm very excited about personally. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have staff members in Italy, which are currently in lockdown as well. Mm-hmm. But so we're kind of, we also have um, people in Honduras, in Central America, which are very motivated and very excited, although in a completely different kind of economical and geographical context. But so now we're at the point, or until a couple of weeks ago, we were at the point <laughs> where we are feeling really good about our business about our future, about our skills, about our team, about our capabilities, and about our systems. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, now this all has to be re-evaluated and will be re-evaluated. But I think we've all based it on very strong foundations. 
Was that your question? Your question was, how did I get to PDW, right? <laughs> Jesus. We're not going to get a short answer Jesus, out I'm of you. I'm such a rambler. You, we're not going to get any short answers from you, are we? Don't even answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> I just now, skipped the next five uh, questions. Yeah, I think we've done I think we've They're done all that. included in this answer. I think you've done all my answers as well. I think we've but just... how, how, how did you experience that? So obviously, <laughs> the, the evolution of Frost, I, I actually first met you at uh, Emory Frost, and was that in That's 2003 right. or so as well? Yeah. Where um, you had this beautiful office in Ferry Hills, and you had this amazing this, launch party. Yeah, yeah. With yeah. somehow photoactive wallpaper where where you projected oh, onto the right. wall, and then your image Flashed. stayed on the wall. Yeah, that was fun. And you had amazing cocktails and amazing sink pots and things. Well, you got a I was good very memory. impressed, and our office was just around the corner. Yeah, that, you, we often popped go. into your place. <laughs> yeah, that you got an amazing memory. My God. Yeah. Yeah, that was a bit of. Uh, yeah, that was a, a launch, and then followed by not that long after, the, the the business kind of the relationship. Me and Gary wasn't so good, and I had the opportunity to buy the business off with my with my business partners Carlo and Ray Parslow at the time. Carlo Giannaski and Ray Parslow had the opportunity to buy the business off of Cleminger, who owned us at that point, and then we became Frost Collective in two thousand. So not Frost Collective, Frost Design in just end of two thousand five. Uh, which coincided with an exhibition at the Opera House called Frostbite, uh, which was cool, and literally. And um, it was, for me, it was about demystifying the design that we've done and kind of talking through how we came about the ideas. Uh, we did a book, a 400-page book called Sorry Trees, and it, it, was a, it, was a, it was a good time. And that's like 17 years ago now. And, uh, you know, when I came to Australia, I was... You know, love the place as you did. It just felt, oh my god, what an incredible place to live uh, compared to London at the time. It was just like London was hard, business was hard. It was kind of just after September 11th, and it was just you know, it was, it was there was a recession there at the time, and you know, it was it was just tough. And so when you see come to Australia and you see Sydney, and you go, oh my god, this place is just stunning and beautiful. And you know, of course, there's a lot of Australians complaining that they don't, the clients don't understand them. But I, but I felt that actually, you know, good design speaks. Is, it is, doesn't need to be sold. And uh, I just brought all that I knew over and combined it with the team that was here. And just, you know, we focused on just getting on and doing, doing great work and really pushing ourselves and the clients hard. And, you know, would it have been better in London? I don't know. Would, the, would we have been a bigger business or achieved more success? I, I don't know. I just think that... I've just knuckled down and just done the best we could where we are. And that's really been, that's been the focus. And as I said earlier on, I was really, I've always been a generalist, so I've never seen myself just as a graphic designer. I'm very much fascinated by business and fascinated by taking on projects that we don't necessarily have experience in and helping to, uh, and that helps us to kind of evolve and push us to into new territories that makes us, you know, surprised and challenged. Creator of the Business of Architecture and Design podcast, blogs, conferences, and videos, Content Brains can assist you with all of your content needs. We will work with you to develop content that inspires, educates, and connects. For more information, visit the episode notes in this podcast for a link to our website. I think that for, for me, it's been an amazing 17 years. 
I think that this is what's happening now with with the virus, the the kind of pandemic that's going around the world. The world is just it's it's just it's just terrible thing. Like you were saying, just kind of getting some momentum. Uh, things are kind of you know good things happening uh, with you know confidence in the market, etc. And then now that's all going to be taken away from us uh, yet again, and. That just means we need to come back and, and recalibrate, come back with, uh, you know, probably a different model, different way of working. Maybe the world changed so dramatically that we were no longer relevant. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe AI is going to take all our jobs at the same time. It's, it's all so uncertain. So I don't even know if my business is going to make it through this one. You know, if they're, if they're anticipating a recession and then a, a global depression, this could be years of hell. And of course, my creative mind thinks about what that might look like or what that might feel like. And I'm trying all my, all my best to try to avoid that, to be honest. So normally I'd be incredibly optimistic and, and I am naturally optimistic uh, person, but there's times now when I just go, you know what, this is like, this is so hard. Uh, not just personally, but for the world and for everybody and especially for the ones who are less fortunate already, you know. You know, I do a lot of work with organizations like Ozharvest, and even Ozharvest was an amazing organization. Ronnie Khan runs that, and she she's grown this huge charity business which redistributes food from restaurants and hotels and supermarkets to you know food that's not out of date, but food that's just about to be out of date. For example, and she takes that, she re- repurposes it, and redistributes it to people in need. And you know, in Australia, there's two million people a. a, a a day that go without uh, breakfast and dinner, for example. And there's a real need there. But when this all happens and you've got people, hundreds of thousands of people signing up for the dole on, on Monday when the whole, all the food, all the restaurants shut down, you know, how, how can they now, you know, where, where do they get their food from for the other people who were actually, or who already were in need? You know, if then everybody's in need, you know, it's such a, such a bizarre situation. And it makes me worried because I naturally want to go into how can I help? How can we fix this? How can we, what can we do that's going to help, you know, make this uh, situation, you know, resolve itself quicker, you know? And then you look at the leadership of this country and you go, my God, this is, we're not going to, it's not going to be quicker. This is going to be a very long drawn out thing because the leader of this country doesn't want to make a, a call of shutting down the country for two weeks or, you know, whatever period it takes to, you know, for people to experience the, the virus and, and, and recover from that. It's, it, rather than do that, because he's so worried about, you know, screwing up the economy and they're pumping in trillions of dollars into the economy trying to keep it afloat. If we could all just get over it, if we could all stop 100% of people coming in and out of the country, people still coming, getting off boats uh, even last weekend without any anybody checking to see if they were sick or had any signs. There are people who are being told, coming in airplanes from overseas, uh, being told, you know, just go self-isolate for two weeks. And then those people are getting on trains to go to the Central Coast or they're going shopping or they're, God knows what they're doing. It's just like, I don't know. So it's for me, it feels like the solution is so obvious. I know it's complicated, but I'm very, I'm very fearful of, of, of being out of business again. And, you know, this probably get edited out, but I definitely feel right now, I feel incredibly nervous uh, about all my guys, my family, my, all my guys who are working from home. 
they worked for me for such a long time and, and, and so hard and so talented and so dedicated. And the culture of our studio and the place and the, the vibrancy of that and the connection with clients who wanting to do good, that is just an incredible thing that we've created for everybody. And the thought of it, you know, sitting there empty right now, the thought of maybe we won't be going back, maybe, maybe this is it, maybe, you know, I'll be back in my, I'll be still here with nobody. Do you know what I mean? We're, we're st- everybody, the business will kind of go down the path. That's a, that's a real, that's a reality that is, from my perspective, highly likely. And you, and you know, you, I'm sure you're going to have the same, same conversation or have same feelings or, or you know, similar, similar things. A lot of people who are as wonderful this country is, it's actually become so expensive. Like you know, our our costs of doing of being in business are incredible and because the cost of living has become totally unaffordable uh and the you know typically clients are pushing down our fees they're they're just haggling and there's other people coming in and doing it for less and you know it's just it's kind of there's a fine line now but by about between being in business and not being in business anyways prior to this happening so I don't know if you find that, but I just find that there, there's not a huge amount of money in this anymore. Not that there ever was, but it's certainly our costs are at an all-time high. And, you know, I was already rethinking the business model. You know, how do we do this differently, more efficiently and more effectively? You know, how, how do we use technology in a, in, a, in a better way to make us connect uh, simpler, cleaner, uh, more efficiently, etc.? It's really like, this is time for you know to everyone to kind of do their best to 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 stay positive and optimistic if possible and of course people will feel down at times and I'm doing a couple more podcasts soon one on optimism and uh on anxiety and uh, mind health in in this in these times with experts and it's really it's yeah it's incredible time incredibly tough and I kind of wonder where what we'll be saying in 6 months time you know what we'll be feeling of coming out of that or not being out of it, still being in it. So a bit of a long ramble there, Chris. I don't know what the question was. <laughs> but uh, Yeah, well, I mean, so many, so many interesting points about that, right? I mean, one, one of them <clears throat> is this continuous cheapening of our profession. And when you talked about Pentagram, you know, you said there was this respect towards Pentagram and the clients really respected what you did and gave you time and and also respect the outcome of that. Whereby now, I'm sure everybody can design a logo, everybody can design a building, everybody can pick their own furniture, etc., etc. Because everything is so easy, and it's suggested that everybody is an expert at everything, which yeah. kind of erodes uh, your profession. And maybe this is a time where you can go back to your core expertise, which is completely different from your client's expertise or from my expertise or from everybody else's expertise. Yes, everybody can design a logo or choose a logo online. They don't need you. So yeah. maybe logo design is not, you know, the future of your business, but, but the, the strategy behind the logo and the experience that you're creating with that and the, the messaging it's not mm. something that you can look up on the internet and that you can copy and that you can fake. Yeah, 
I mean, so, I don't know. So in, in architecture, it's not about the architectural production. Uh, as such, it's not about producing paper, but it's about creating ideas that only we can create. Mm. And and yes, we, we need to often look at ways to, to produce these ideas to fit a budget. You know, there's no budget for an animation. An animation uh, years ago would have cost $100,000. The model would have cost $100,000. And now there's no budget for that. So how can we try and, you know, get this idea across without a model? Or can we laser cut the model, assemble it ourselves? Can we do the animation ourselves? How can, or can we somehow, instead of an animation, can we have something else? Mm. <clears throat> so, so we are constantly looking at new ways of essentially getting the ideas across. The ideas at the end of the day is that our core business, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. I guess the question is, what were those ideas? Like, you're giving all that animation for, for very little money now. You're doing what what would have been quite a costly thing. You're making it more efficient and more cost-effective for the client. But does that, you know, where, where then do you get your fees? The clients who come to you, they come to you because of who you are, yeah. what you represent, how you work, yeah. and, and what you produce. And so at the moment in Sydney, we don't have any, you know, commercial jobs. And residential jobs in that sense are also commercial because they're highly, you're not commercial in a sense. You get uh, an Excel spreadsheet with these square meters you have to achieve with the apartment mix. Mm -hmm. You know exactly how big the apartments are. Yep. You know exactly with the building design code how the layout of the apartments has to be. Yep. You have setbacks, you have height limits, you have uh, material restrictions, and you pretty much know what the building looks like just by reading the brief. So there's very little room to move within that but yeah. then there's like a creative design uh, competition process where because it's so restrictive you have to invite john well frank geary norman foster and one local mm -hmm. to make it look like you're really asking the best in the world to design something that by definition cannot be the best in the world and mm -hmm. so we are always looking for projects that are a little bit more open-minded mm -hmm. and you know, the, like the outcome has to be open. That's why they come to us. Yeah, yeah, Not yeah. because you know exactly what they want. They, you yeah. know, sometimes you have clients who come to you and say, I know exactly what I want. I just need someone to draw it. Oh, <laughs> then we're probably not, the, <laughs> probably not the right people. Yeah, yeah. We want people with a vision, but uh, be surprised how we interpret that vision. Yeah. When talking about how you dress or how people, with, you know, dress previously, one thing about you, you're always wearing a Hugo Boss t-shirt. Why is Sometimes. that? Okay, why is that? <clears throat> because of the boss, right? Although no, it's, some, it's with, a, it's with a, no E on the end. Your name's got an E on the end. <laughs> it's some romantic connection, uh, I think, to my hometown because Hugo ah. Boss is uh, produced in Stuttgart, Germany. Ah. And Mercedes-Benz is produced in Stuttgart, Germany. So I think the least I can do is wear Hugo Boss, Porsche, and drive a Mercedes. <laughs> <laughs> it's my humble contribution to, to my yeah, hometown. Yeah. But I think but my Mercedes, by the way. Yeah. Sorry, my my Mercedes uh, was built in nineteen ninety five, so it's it's an early kind of E class model, mm -hmm. and so it's not the latest and greatest flashy uh, Mercedes with USB and Bluetooth and Wi Fi and automatic face recognition or something. It's mm. just a solid car that was built uh, in the old days with a beautiful design, mm -hmm. the way that cars 
should be built and it's built right. And maybe it's not the most sustainable car ever invented, but the fact that it's been driving since 1995 is also a, a kind of sustainable act rather than replacing your car every six months with the latest thing and throw the old one away. You know, things like our telephones that are outdated pretty much every year. I have an iPhone 7 and people look at me like I have, you know, one of these uh, phones with a dial and and a separate uh, Yeah, that's funny because it's like pack. It, the, when you look at your architecture, it's very futuristic, isn't it? I, I kind of imagine that you should be driving a hover car, you know, like, you know what I mean? Like that that you'd be very, fu- like a futurist. Yeah. And always having the latest car and going completely nuts in that. Yeah. You talked about, you talk about Russ Lovegrove me, before, and Russ Lovegrove, he always wears, like, have you seen him in his wonderful white hair? He's a, a product designer, yeah. furniture designer. He wears, like, every, a blue suit, but it's, like, blue shirt, blue tie, blue suit, blue shoes, yeah. like, everything. Like, he's just incredible. Yeah. Some people are very much uh, live and breathe their work, you know, in everything that they do. You know what I mean? I'm personally more casual. Yeah. I'm more casual. The work might look... Sorry, the dogs are going down the stairs now. Uh, the work looks pretty professional, but I'm I'm, I'm more I'm comfortable in shorts and a t-shirt, like going for, for dinner and it looking like that. I don't care what I look like. I mean, I'm always neat and tidy, but I, I don't really care about... I hate wearing suits. I hate, I hate dressing up. I hate anything that feels restrained. I like being... And you love Harley Davidson. Uh, not anymore. I've now got a, I've got a BMW, funny enough. Are they from Stuttgart as well? From Munich, but close enough. <laughs> which, which BMW? The R9T. I love it. It's just a beautiful design, beautiful bike, incredible experience. All right, I'll have to have a look at that. Yeah, yeah. Well, funny enough, my Harley-Davidson is Harley-Davidson hybrid with the Porsche motor. So it is, you know, not a classic Harley-Davidson, but it's a Harley-Davidson from the future somehow. They use it in, in like, oh. hip-hop videos and sci-fi movies because it just looks like out of this world. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I love design pieces, and design can be a classic design. You know, I love a Penton chair, and you could say, why yeah, don't yeah. you sit on a 2020 chair? Yeah. I love the Penton chair, and I love the Mercedes yeah, yeah, yeah. for being of its time and representing that and of course, I also like electric scooters and hoverboards and drones and, yeah. and everything else. Yeah. I think the point was more about, you know, you can always chase the latest thing and throw everything else away, or yeah. you can really appreciate good things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I have this uh, Polson light, which I think is from 1956 or something, the Danish designer, it's called PH5. And it's just the most amazing lamp ever. And mm. until someone comes up with a better lamp, I'm going to have this lamp. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, but at the same time, I'm sitting in front of a Dyson fan tower, yeah. which uh, when it came out was the absolute revolution. You know, the bladeless fan. Yeah, How yeah, can yeah. you have a fan with a hole in the center? Yeah. It looks completely out of a sci-fi movie. Yeah, so yeah. I want to surround myself with things that are designed on purpose with intelligence, creativity, and foresight. And sometimes they become classics, sometimes not. Yeah. I love Ross Lovegrove, uh, and I have a lot of items. For example, all our bathroom appliances are Ross Lovegrove. I'm a big fan of Mark Newson. Mm-hmm. A lot of our kitchen components are from Mark Newson, and I'm actually drinking currently out of the Mark Newson unbreakable 
wine glass, mm-hmm. which I drink water out of. Mm-hmm. And it's just this most amazing piece of design. Mm-hmm. I think life is too short to buy $2 glasses in a crappy shop. Mm-hmm. You rather buy a $20 glass and then you actually value this glass and mm-hmm. appreciate it. And mm-hmm. it will be, well, Mark Newsom says it's unbreakable. So I hope it will be with me for the rest of my life. Join us tomorrow for episode four as Chris and Vince continue their conversation on the business of architecture and design. Thank you for joining us. If you want further details on our podcast or our guests, please visit the episode notes in this podcast. And if you enjoy listening, please rate us. It helps others like you to find us more easily. The Business of Architecture and Design is produced by Joanne Davies, Head of Content Brains and Publisher of Architectural Review and Australian Design Review. Madeline Swain, Editor of Content Brains and Tilly Bensley-Netheim, Editor of Architectural Review and Australian Design Review Architecture.